On today's episode of the Bet the Process podcast, we're going to do a little recap of the NCAA tournament. We're going to be talking to Ken Palm about what he thinks or who he thinks has value from both a betting standpoint. We're talking about what Leonard Hamilton did wrong. And we'll also be talking a little bit about baseball, getting you ready for opening day. As always, the Bet the Process podcast is brought to you by the Sports Action app. It's the best app to sport follow all of your best sports betting content and uh, lines and follow your bets and track your bets, etc. It's available on the App Store and Google Play. So get it today. There's no reason not to. It's free. And with that, let's start the process. Welcome to our latest off-season episode of the Bet the Process podcast with Jeffrey Ma and Rufus Peabody. Peabody. Got it. Nailed it. Nailed it. Peabody. Nailed it. Who's in Buenos Aires still. How long are you in Buenos Aires for? Uh, just until Saturday. Then I head to Cordoba. I don't even know where that is. So, it's also in Argentina. I just, I just got back from a weekend surf retreat. I've discovered That's... that surfing is probably now my second favorite sport. What's your first oh, golf? Golf to play. Like golf and surfing are the two sports where when I'm doing them, I forget about everything else. It's like meditative. There's a lot of overlap, actually. My, my brother-in-law runs a, a surf club in uh, Newport Beach, and there's a lot of overlap between surfers and golfers, actually. We've been sort of talking about that lately. It is that sort of zen, meditative state. So I wonder if there's an overlap between gamblers and surfers. Probably not. Yeah. I think it's hard for the uh, gamblers to get into that meditative state. Um, you're a rarity. And I think like that's one of the things that's helped you uh, in the last couple of years as I've gotten to know you become more you know, in touch with sort of a lot of stuff. It's been pretty impressive to see this Rufus transformation. <laughs> but I, I mean, I think that, that gambling and sort of the whole Buddhism meditation type philosophies go very well together because I think to be a successful gambler, I believe you need to be very process driven and understand randomness. And I think that that's kind of what all this sort of Eastern philosophy stuff is about, right? I guess so. I mean, that would explain why like Asians tend to really like gambling because exactly. Um, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I actually was on television once and the host asked me about that because it, I was doing a hit on, like why, how Macau was actually going to pass Las Vegas in terms of gambling revenue or in terms of revenue. Um, and, you know, he asked me, he's like, why are the Asians such big gamblers? And like this ethos of there being like a higher being that dictates things and being okay with, it, I don't know, whatever. Anyways, let's move on. No one is here uh, listening to us, wants to hear us talking about um, Eastern religion or whatnot, I don't think. No, they want to hear us talking about gambling. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk so about let's, gambling. Let's talk about the NCAA tournament. Sure. Sounds good. That's top of so, mind for me. So Jeff, you said you have a 75 to one ticket on Michigan to win it all. When did you place I that? Do. Uh, what's surprising about that is, is I placed it um, right around the time um, when they were winning the big 10 championship. Um, there were some places that still had, uh, futures listed and I was able to get, you know, not a, not a lot of money, not, you know, like a small amount of money down on a 75 to one, uh, Michigan ticket. Um, actually our, our friend, um, 
Preston was the one that texted me and said, Hey, go check and to see um, if you have any places that you can get a 75 to one ticket down on, or sorry, if you can get any Michigan futures down. And I looked and, and there was 75 to one available. Um, so, you know, it's, again, it's not, it's not a lot of money. It's, it's not enough money to even really like think about hedging or anything like that, but it's fun to be holding a 75 to one ticket for sure. Well, I mean, it doesn't, um, even if it's just a little bit of money, it's paying 75 times that amount. So that's pretty good. True, true, true. And I think it's interesting because, um, you know, our friend Steve Fezzik and that podcast had been talking about their 40 to one, which is what they were able to get, I guess, in town um, on Michigan. And, you know, even at, I think as, as late as, you know, maybe the Sweet 16, Michigan, or right before the Sweet 16, Michigan was still only like an 18 to one. Um, so there wasn't a lot of hedging value. I think people like a lot of times will overvalue the opportunity to hedge. Um, and we've had hedging discussions a lot on this, on this Mm -hmm. podcast. And really it it has to do mostly with whether you can put a position on, on the other side that you think has, um, you know, value to it. So I, I, I have been looking throughout this on, you know, whether like Gonzaga at some point had value as a future as sort of a hedge or, you know, right now I, I feel like Villanova is by far the, you know, the favorite, but they're worse than even money right now as a futures bet. Um, so I don't know if there's like a, a really good way. I mean, certainly there's a way to hedge the Michigan 75 to one ticket and get out with a sure profit. I mean, I probably oh, you can do. get a nice profit. I mean, just, I mean, if you bet Loyola Chicago money line and then, I mean, obviously it's two games, like that's all. Yeah, no, no. I I know I know that you could get out with a nice profit here. Um, but I guess what I'm saying is that, you know, like in in the case you'd you'd have to determine that you believe there's value in Loyal Chicago, I think, for me to want to do it on on the money line, um, which I think is like plus two twenty or something like that. Um, you know, Loyal Chicago's been an interesting case, right? Because you know, the, the story or the narrative about them has been that they're this huge Cinderella because they're an 11 seed, but they haven't really been a big underdog in any of their games. I think the biggest one was Tennessee, where they opened as like about a six point underdog and then it moved down to, I think, as low as four and a half in some places. But against Miami, with the team they opened, you know, they were anywhere from like a one and a half to two and a half point underdog. Um, then they played Nevada and they were basically pick them against Nevada. And I think Nevada was about a one point favorite at one point. Um, and then, you know, like I said, Tennessee was a favorite. Sorry, Tennessee was the second game that they played. And then um, finally, they were, you know, more or less again, pick them um, in their last game against Kansas State. And the Kansas State was a slight favorite. It moved anywhere from Kansas State one and a half to even. So the gambling they, betting markets, what's that? No, they had an incredible draw. You're right. They got so lucky that, you know, the UVA got knocked out that, um, that Cincinnati got knocked out, right? I mean, they, they didn't really have to play anybody. Yeah, they really, they really didn't. Um, Miami, I think people thought was a bit overseeded because they had lost, um, you know, they lost one of their best players, if not their best player earlier in the year. So they weren't quite as good as, as maybe um, their early season um, performance had dictated. And, and that might've contributed to them having slightly higher seed. Um, but certainly Kansas state was missing their best player also. I mean, Loyola Chicago's played great. Like five minutes into that Kansas State game, I looked up and I'm like, Loyola Chicago just looks like the better team. And and they've had an interesting run because the, their guy, their top player or their top point guard, 
uh, Custer has was out for I think three or four games, and I think they lost most of those games. So all their losses, I think everything except two losses have come when he's been out of the lineup. So they've they've been a very very good team when he's been in the lineup. And um, you know I I don't think they're going to beat Michigan. I, I think Michigan is um, you know with with beeline with that much time to prepare, and certainly they're going to take Loyola Chicago very seriously. Um, I just think Michigan will just will will be able to beat them. So I, I don't see myself hedging um, this seventy five to one. Although maybe on Saturday morning I wake up with a different opinion. So Jeff, wait, you're saying that this is not a letdown spot for Michigan. We don't, we don't need to get into that situational motivational factors here. I mean, you're in the final four, uh-huh. right? And, and it's, it's that, like, it's, that it's was just, completely tongue in cheek. No, I know it was, but it is interesting. Um, because I think like when you, when you look at some of the, the NCAA games that have happened so far, you know, you wonder whether Kansas state wasn't a bit of a letdown against Loyola Chicago um, after you know, beating Kentucky, right? You know, they beat right. Kentucky. Kentucky is Kentucky, and they beat them. And, and in some respects, they beat them pretty well. I mean, I know that it was a close game, and Kentucky was even up um, at you know late in that game. But like you, Kansas State looked like the better team in that game um, for large stretches. And um, I think it was hard for them. I mean, I wonder, like, is it let down, or is it just like some sort of like reversion to the mean, or something like that, where? You know, after having like that level of effort, it's just hard to bring that same level of effort, you know, two days later against a team that that nobody's ever even heard of. And you're from a Big 12 conference and and it's just mentally, I mean, these are 18 to 22 year old kids. Like, how are they able to to sort of like just divorce themselves from thinking like, you know, I mean, you, you celebrate when you beat a Kentucky, you beat Kentucky, you beat yeah. like guys that are all going to be in the NBA. Um, and again, like I think underestimating like the value of Kansas state losing Dean Wade, who's their best offensive player. Um, I, I think that was, that was a big thing. Um, they were able to overcome it for most of the tournament, but again, like they had a great draw also, right. They, they got to play right. UMBC and, 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 you know, like I think Kentucky was an interesting team because they were playing very well, um, going into that game, and a lot of people had them, you know, anointed as as like a, a Final Four team when all those good teams fell out of their bracket. Um, but they had struggled at a lot of times this year. Kentucky did, and they, so, yeah. they did not play well against Kansas State. To your point, so. though, I think I think we should name regression. Re, I think we should rename regression to the mean uh, the conservation of greatness principle. You only have you know, so much greatness. You only in have your so life much and... greatness in you. Yeah. But you know, yeah, so I mean... so, yeah, Jeff. You know that you're not the only one with the big Michigan futures ticket out there. In fact, uh, you know the owner of the D Hotel in Las Vegas and the Golden Gate, actually, Derek Stevens, who, by the way, bet um, I think put ten thousand on every single first round game at the South Point, like right when the odds came out, and made like sixteen grand on that. But he has a $25,000 futures ticket on Michigan at 40 to 1 odds. So he wins uh, an even million at the Golden Nugget, actually, um, if, if Michigan wins at all. So how did, like, I mean, this is like the Vegas Dave thing. How did these places let these people get such big numbers down on futures tickets? He's a like, casino did... owner. He's a casino owner and a friend of, you know, the, the owners of the Nugget, I'm sure. And, you know, 40 to 1, I think, when he got it back in 
early March or late February or something. I, I don't think. Oh, it was, got it. I, I, I think they realized that you know, yeah, it, it wasn't great value or anything. I don't. I don't think. I oh, don't, so this not was not. Closely, but this was not this, relatively this, recent. They're they're basically willing to let these guys bet size for what they consider to be crappy value. And and it gives you sort of some good PR as well, right? I mean, that the Nugget took this bet. Yeah, I mean that's I that mean, must be how Vegas Dave gets a lot of his big futures bets down if those are even real things or or whatever. Do you think like Vegas Dave is betting on both sides or something? What, what? I think I think places are. I think he's betting almost all the futures and then just finding and then you know the ones that halfway through the season, the ones that look like they're really great value, he starts touting those ones. But I think that. Most of these books, if you if if you've read any quotes from people in the in the sports betting world, or sorry, um, on the other side of the counter, um, like I think William, some guy from William Hill was like, "Yeah, Vegas Dave has lost a ton to us." You know, it's he shows the winning right. tickets, he doesn't show the losing tickets, and they're very happy to take big bets from him. And and that's saying something because William Hill is very happy to boot winning betters. All right, well let's so, let's move on a little bit from futures. What uh, what are your other? Have you been watching the tournament? Um, a little bit, a little bit. It's hard. To, I have to like VPN into the U.S. to try to like you know to, to even be able to watch any of the games. But I want I want to hear your opinion on all these upsets we've had, especially UVA, not just losing to a 16 seed, but losing by 20. I mean, I think they were yeah. what, a tw- they were more than a 20 point favorite. Is that right? Well, it opened as a 20. They were a 23 point favorite, and then when DeAndre Hunter was announced out, I think it went down as low as as 20 and a half is maybe what it closed on. Okay, okay, but but still, they were over 20 point favorite. They were a huge, huge favorite, and yeah, I mean, we I think we knew that a 16 would eventually beat a one. It's just did we know? Though? Like a lot of people didn't really believe it would ever happen. Well, just because I mean, I guess if you if you just go like they were like what oh and one hundred and thirty or something like that one thirty oh and one thirty five I don't know but but obviously like twenty point underdogs do win sometimes it's just like forty point underdogs in college football have won um, you had Howard beating um, you had Howard beating UNLV right was that this year yeah. or last year. Yeah, you you, you have crazy so. upsets no, that like that. That, that, that was this year. That was this year. That was this year. Yeah, you I mean, have crazy I... upsets that happened. It was, it's, you know, it, it, and it's, you would have expected a 16 to have beaten a one earlier just based on the, the, the money lines that you get on those individual games. You would have expected maybe one to two wins, right? But, but to lose by 20, where does that, re- like, where is that, um, stand relative to other upsets and just in terms of the magnitude of a team? Um, of surpassing expectations, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I, I well, one, I, I think that the money line in that game was like twenty to one is is kind of what I'm seeing. Um, and so, you know, you're, you're saying like what, roughly like a five percent, you know, four percent kind of chance of something hap- that happening, right? Oh, I think there was a much less chance. I mean, the, the the chance was much less than that. I think that books just take, you know, I mean, yeah, you're getting twenty to one, but you're having to lay a hundred to one on the other side, probably. Sure. So let's say the true odds were one. In I'll pull out my. I'll pull out my 50? little chart and tell you. Okay, you better do that while I talk through this. And my chart, um, which by the way hasn't been updated in in like four or five years with the money lines, but you know it's got so, years and years of data. So it's okay. So anytime people talk about big upsets, right? They talk about Buster Douglas and Mike Tyson, right? And that one was like well forty five to one. Um, and Buster Douglas, similar to UMBC, did beat the crap out of 
uh, Mike Tyson in that fight. Like he knocked him down and it, it wasn't even really close. Um, I don't know. There's some interesting things about this game. I think one, you know, Virginia's defense, which you wouldn't have expected to be the reason they lost, was wasn't since the reason they lost. They gave up something like 53 points to UMBC in the second half, and they hadn't given up 53. There were there were you know a litany of games this year where they didn't give up 53 points in the entire game. So their defense completely broke down. Um, you know, obviously not having DeAndre Hunter, DeAndre Hunter was a big deal, but that that was not obviously why they lost this game. Like there's no world where they should lose to a 16 seed um, <clears throat> simply because they lost one of their better the players. Man. I mean, he, he was, he was the sixth man, but obviously a lot of people thought he was way more than that. And, you know, the line only moved what two and a half points based on his, his absence. So, I mean, I think, again, like 16 beating a one, um, I think the thing that was crazy to people now, you know, UMBC was only in this game because they had had a a last minute three pointer against Vermont in the conference championship to get there. So in some respects, they didn't even belong to be here. And if you looked at Ken Palm, they were really buried down low. So you had the overall number one seed playing against, you know, what would probably be the, the, the worst seed, the hundred or sorry, the uh, 68 team yeah, or whatever. 68. Yeah. So, so it's, it was pretty crazy. Um, but I mean, it just goes to show you what three point variance does, right? Because in that game, the three point variance basically, you know, told the entire story of the game. Um, I, I looked this up and I'll look it up again. Um, do you have your, did you produce your handy yeah. dandy calculator? Yeah, yet? over, over 98%. I mean, for 90, 20, 20, for a 28 or a 20 and a half point favorite. Um, yeah. Looks like between nine, like a little over 98.2% is what I'm showing. Right. So in that game um, and, you know, a lot of times when I look at games like that, I, I like to look at three point shooting and UMBC shot 12 of 24, 50% against a Virginia team who was a great defensive team. The Virginia shot four of 22, four for 22 for 18%. So if you just like equate both of those to being what they, the, the, you know, what you would expect, like you'd expect probably UMBC to make roughly six out of 24 or seven out of 24. So that's a difference of say 15 points there. And you'd expect UVA at worst to make like eight of 22 shots. So that's another, you know, uh, whatever, 12 points there. You know, that's that's the whole difference there. And I know that that sounds like trite to just say it's three point shooting variance, but sometimes we overvalue like with with how many three point shots are taken. You know, if if UMBC misses a few of those, then all of a sudden that game is a whole different game. Um, And so sometimes it's like not as complicated as people think, like they want to go and break down things. But if, you know, the three point shot either goes in and do- or doesn't go in. If that if that goes in a little bit more often for Virginia and a little less often for UMBC, Virginia probably wins that game comfortably. But Jeff, what do you think of the narrative now that that um, Tony Bennett's system doesn't work in March? That UVA always disappoints in the tournament, and it's something to do with their style of play. Well, I don't think it's that they disappoint in March. I think it's that they overperform in the regular season. So they probably overperform a little bit of their talent in the regular season. It's sort of like what people are saying right now about Brad Stevens and the Celtics, that because of the level of effort and, and, you know, the way that they play in the regular season, that 
you know, their ceiling is, you know, reached during the regular season, whereas they don't necessarily have another ceiling um, for, you know, and, and, and I just, I don't, I don't believe it because, you know, I, I think one of the things that, you know, you, you worry about with UVA is that they just, they haven't had that elite talent that sometimes you need. And, and, you know, people believe, oh, talent wins out in March. Um, I think this would have been the year if, if things had brought, I mean, like, it's funny because they would have had all those teams being sort of X'd out of there. You know, Cincinnati would have been gone and they would have gotten to play a Kentucky team that it seems like wasn't that great after, you know, obviously like we're reacting to one game against Kansas state, but um, it was set up pretty well for, for Virginia. Um, I, I don't, I don't believe in that kind of stuff. I believe in like a team being, if a team's good over a long course of time, like simply saying that like all of a sudden, like some environment changes that makes it such that they, you know, I'll be interested to see like later on, we're going to talk to Ken Palm. I'll definitely be interested to ask him if he believes this is like an indictment on the Tony Bennett system. I don't believe it is, but I, I, I'm not a big believer in any of those things. When, when people talk about like the Oakland A's back in the day, not being able to, you know, Billy Bean Moneyball doesn't work in the playoffs. I, I think that's bullshit. Like it's just you, you, you're taking larger sample size and then bringing it down to a smaller sample size and using that smaller sample size to indict the larger sample size, right? That doesn't, that's like counter to like math. I agree. It's, it's creating a narrative around a small sample. And, and I think that Tony Bennett's system, I, I think if he played a different system, if he played like a system like Kentucky or like UNC, which, you know, with the players he has now, they wouldn't be near, they, they would not have a ton of success in the regular season. Right. So I think that what he's done, like, as you said, he's gotten the most out of his players. The team is like, the team has played way better than their talent level, right. Because of the system. Yeah. And, and I think that, I think that that will end up, you know, happening um, for him. I mean, he will make a lot, he'll make a, between now and three years from now, I will bet that he will have a long, you know, run with one of these Virginia teams in the tournament. I'm not going to say he's going to win a championship, but I think he'll make a final four. Um, he's, he's a great coach. And like the way that team plays is great. I mean, it, it's, you know, one of my buddies texted me during that game and he was like, this is the makeup of a team that could lose. They don't, you know, their offense is limited. It's going to be hard for them to come back if they get down. Um, and so maybe that's true if their offense is a little bit limited, but I mean, like the reality is like they lost that game because their defense played like crap in there and, and they gave up a lot of three, like probably easy three point shots if the, if UMBC shot 50%, but there is a, certainly a narrative of just three point shooting variants. I think that we can attach to that loss. True or false, UVA season was an utter failure as a result. It's losing that game is just such an embarrassment that the season is a unmitigated disaster. Which is, I think, the perspective of a lot of UVA fans and alums who say that this is the most embarrassed they've ever been. Agreed. I mean, I think that's hard to say. They they like set records for the wins in the ACC. They won the ACC championship by you know, 10 points or whatever. They won by nine points over UNC. Um, they had a great season. I, I mean, as fandom is not rational. So, you know, the, the thought that this ruins their entire season, it might not be rational, but it might just be the way fans feel. And I think, yeah, if you, if I lost, if I was a one seed losing to a 16, it's just like, it's the, it's like the Patriots season, the Patriots 18 and one season, like that season yep. was the best, you know, arguably the best regular season ever that an NFL team has had. And then they lost and they didn't even lose. Like, you know, it'd be like if they lost in the first game of the playoffs, you know, by 
by 20 points or something like that. They lost in the Super Bowl, but in almost spectacular fashion. Um, and when I look back on that season, I don't have fond memories of it. I certainly, I remember, you know, Randy Moss running up and down the field, you know, setting records and whatnot. And that was certainly fun. Um, but yeah, you have, you, I think as a fan of Virginia, I would not tell someone they're an idiot for thinking that the, the season was a disaster because you're a fan and like, there's irrational things that come to your mind and it's very emotional and being part of that 16 one, the first time it ever happens, it's embarrassing. I agree. I mean, I ha- although I've told UVA fans that their season isn't a failure and that you, that doesn't take away from the regular season, but they disagree. Yeah. Um, move, moving on, one other thing in, in the tournament um, that's been getting a lot of attention is Florida State and uh, Leonard Hamilton's decision not to foul down four with, what, 10 or 11 seconds left, um, basically was conceding the game. And he said that, well, why would he foul the game? It's over. And you know, well, in all likelihood, he said that he said that he said that in the heart of so yeah. And he was the moment he was, was defending himself. A terrible, but, terrible decision because it's like so a here's free the question rule, though, right? How, yes, but how bad was it? Is it like it doesn't? I mean, what what I, are their I, I, actual? No, I know, I know. If you have any hope, you should foul. But, yeah, but um, but I do think there's something so to I, losing gracefully. Like you know, technically, there's hope left if you're down 12 points with 20 seconds left, but teams aren't fouling then. Um. You know, it's like well, but the okay, question. So the question is, what was their actual win probability there? What do you think? And I, I don't have, an, I don't have a win probability chart in front of me. I looked up some it. of the calculators. Um, there was one that I saw that sort of that allowed you to, you know, I would say it was somewhere between one to two percent would be my guess, maybe two percent. Because you have to, yeah. I mean, well, you, you, have made, to, you have to, you have to, you have to foul. You have to have them miss free throws, and you have to score two baskets in ten seconds, and you know. It takes time for a ball to go from the shooter's hands. You don't, have to have them, you don't necessarily have to have them. You don't have to have them miss free throws, right? Like you can, you, you could conceivably to... foul there, right? Or at least like you can trap, and there's a yeah. chance that they turn the ball over. I think so. We, here's what I think happened. This is my theory on what happened. Michigan has one good free throw shooter. Earlier, the possession before. He got the ball in the corner, and they had him more or less trapped, and then they stupidly fouled him right away. Right, He went down and made two. And I don't know if you know that, that play where he had the ball after the missed three happened right in front of, front of the Florida State bench. And I'm guessing that Leonard Hamilton or someone on the bench was saying, don't foul, meaning don't foul Duncan Robinson, who is by far, he's like a 90% free throw shooter. He's by far their best free throw shooter. And I think the players took that to mean don't foul at all. And, you know, in the confusion, in the confusion of like, you know, five seconds, it became too late. Right. Yeah. I, and I don't think that like Leonard Hamilton wanted to throw anyone under the bus about that. I think there's especially right at the at the height of that moment, like he was probably just like, hey, why? You know, when Dana Jacobson's asking him those questions, he's like, why cry over spilt milk at this point? The game was basically over. And, and in essence, he's and right. The game, the game was, was basically over. over. This yeah, isn't like was... this isn't this isn't a huge gap because it, it cost their team, you know, one percent in win probability, right? Versus there are probably other mistakes that happened during the game that cost you know the team a lot more. Like a a, a freaking missed three pointer somewhere is like has a much 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 bigger um, impact on their odds of winning. Even like a missed three pointer in the first five minutes of the game, right? Yeah, I mean, and, and I think the people that believe that there was like some conspiracy theory, like I've heard people even say like, oh, booster, like 
coaches coach knowing their boosters, what their boosters are on, and they want to make their boot. I think that's all bullshit. Like, there's no way Leonard Hamilton is thinking about the point spread at that moment. If he yeah. is, like, maybe I'm just a naive asshole. But, like, I, I think le- legitimately what happened is, like, they did not want to f- foul Duncan Robinson, which I understand. But honestly, at that point, there's so little time that you can't pick and choose who you foul. You've got to foul because that time is more precious, right? You need a whole bunch of like crazy things to happen and optimizing around the, you know, free throw percentages of a few players is not really going to be the difference. The difference is going to be time more than anything. So you've got to foul quickly if you want that. You The more time you have, the more opportunity you have for crazy things to happen. So not fouling right away is is a huge mistake in my mind. Um, and you know, honestly, like that, that line was anywhere from three and a half to four and a half. It had been three and a half at one point during the day. Um, four was probably not a, a great result, um, for the books. I, I actually don't know for sure, but like, it, it's, you know, it's, it's, um, I, I find it funny that people think there's some like real conspiracy theory attached to that. It's just, it's Do they like, really? silly to me. Oh God! I, yeah, people people always really think there's conspiracy theories. There's always these narratives that oh, you know, yeah, that, that it's fixed or whatever, and that yeah, someone knew the point spread, and yeah, I, I I don't agree with any of those conspiracy theories ever. Yeah. All right. So, so I think that's a good. Did you want to talk about anything else on the tournament? I, I mean, we could talk about the final four, right? I mean, that's what's about to happen next yeah, weekend. Yeah. So we we are we're like I said, we're gonna have uh, Ken Palm on. Um, a little interview with him to talk about the final four. Um, my impression right now is that Villanova and, and a lot of people, this is like saying Shakespeare was a genius. Uh, Villanova is a really good team. Um, and I think they're the best team left. I, I think they're going to beat Kansas. Um, Kansas really Duke was, I think very played very badly in that game. Like the, the idea that that Duke is coached by an elite coach Um, watching that Duke team play that zone was ridiculous. Like Kansas was able to get shots that they wanted all the time. And even in the first, even though in the first half they, they, you know, were scoring like, I think less than a point per possession. um, It was, it was just, it just seemed to me um, like, I, I remember thinking at that time, like if Duke plays Villanova with this zone, Villanova is going to shred it. So you know, Kansas played well. They shot three-pointers well. Malik Newman was an animal, but I do think they're going to lose um, to Villanova. And then I think Michigan's going to beat Loyola, and then I think we're going to see a Villanova-Michigan finals. Um, that's going to be close, and it's really going to come down to a very, very simple thing. Who shoots a higher who <laughs> makes a higher percentage of their three-pointers? I, yep. I will almost guarantee you right now, and obviously this is not like that bold a statement, but whoever makes a higher percentage of their three-pointers, not a higher number of three-pointers, but a higher percentage higher of their three-pointers will win that game. What so. what would you make the money line on that bet? The, like, So what, what are the odds that the team that shoots a better three-point percentage wins? Well, what, I wonder uh, what that... Would you say 70%, 75%? Yeah, I was going to say minus 400. Okay. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't know what it is. I'm high. curious. I'd say it's, I'd say it's pretty, like, pretty, pretty damn high because obviously it's completely, you know, it's causal and correlated, right? I mean, like, oh, yeah. if you shoot higher three point, you're going to score more points. <laughs> you score more points, you have a higher chance to win. If if, if it was a Syracuse teams, game, if it was a Syracuse game, you know, the odds might not be that high, right? 
Well, the other thing too is you know that there's going to be a lot of three pointers shot by both teams in that game. Mm-hmm. So, of course, that's a, a factor to all of this too. So maybe maybe somebody on Twitter can like tell us what they think that line should be. Yeah, it's a complicated line though. It's it is. the it's it's yeah. It's that's the fun, those line. are the fun things though. I like coming up with bets that are not or making lines on things that are um, a little esoteric. You know. Okay, so it is just to be as definitive possible. It's the line that the team that shoots a higher three point percentage will win the game. Yes. There you go. Okay. All right. That concludes our college basketball stuff. Um, we're going to welcome in Ken Palm right now to talk a little bit of March Madness Final Four and his impressions. All right. I now welcome on about the process Ken Pomeroy, the legendary man who, um, you know, creates probably the best college basketball ratings out there and in many ways has re- revolutionized the betting markets by applying uh, really good analytics to sports betting. So the first thing I'm going to ask you is sort of what has surprised you most so far about the tournament? Obviously, there's been a ton of surprises, so I'd be curious to know which is the one that surprised you the most. Yeah, yeah, I don't know if one necessarily stands out, but I mean, to me, it was just – you know, that one side of the bracket, uh, I think by convention, it's been the left side of the bracket in most uh, brackets I've seen, uh, you know, just completely fell apart. You know, there are obviously <clears throat> a number of uh, <clears throat> uh, big upsets, but uh, most of them occurred on the left side. So, you know, I didn't, you know, I didn't have that high of opinion of Arizona compared to, I think, the rest of the, you know, media, I guess. But uh, I didn't see them losing, you know, the way they did to Buffalo in a really a non-competitive game. Um, certainly, obviously, didn't see Virginia losing to UMBC. Uh, you know, didn't see Kentucky uh, struggling after you know the bracket basically became wide open for them. Uh, didn't see UNC, you know, losing badly to Texas A&M. And so it was just kind of weird how you know all of those upsets were pretty shocking, and they all occurred on one side of the bracket, and uh, obviously opened things up for uh, uh, some unusual teams to like get to the Sweet 16 and the Elite Eight. What's interesting is I actually looked at your um, your ratings going into the Sweet 16, and the betting markets were actually um, lower on Kentucky than you were by your numbers. Um, Kentucky was only, I think, about an even favorite. You could get them for even um, to basically uh, make the Final Four. And I think you were more like plus 130 or plus 140 or something like that. So even though you were thought you were thinking that Kentucky would get through, like the markets didn't think quite as much of them. Um, you, you were always pretty high on Nevada. It seemed like, did you think they had a shot, you know, when it, when it came down to there was, was that your sort of dark horse in that region? Uh, well, not at the beginning, at the beginning of the tournament, you know, Tennessee, I thought was, uh, uh, a pretty good data course out of that region, certainly um, bucking a conventional wisdom because I really didn't hear a soul picking Tennessee uh, to get to the Final Four. And, uh, you know, history will not look back favorably on their efforts to do so. But obviously, uh, they were they were fell by like a super unlucky bounce on a Clayton Custer shot late in their game. And uh, if they had gotten by that, who knows what would have happened. But, um, yeah, you know, Nevada was weird. They, I was higher, like my system was higher on them all season than, than the betting markets were. And I'm not exactly sure why that was. Uh, you know, they had a, a nice year, you know, kind of, I don't know if you say they dominated the Mountain West, but, you know, they're clearly the, the best team there. And, uh, um, you know, struggled a little bit down the, the stretch as they, after they lost their point guard, Lindsey Drew. But, uh, I, you know, I wasn't quite, uh, you know, 
I, I knew they were going to get a great game from Loyola Chicago. That was a pretty pretty even matchup as it turned out in the ratings, and uh, and uh, that's how it played out on the court as well. So, you know, you mentioned UMBC and Virginia. Obviously, that was incredibly shocking for all of us. Um, what were your what are your reactions to most people when they ask you about that? Because I'm sure tons of people have. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's uh, it, it's you know, as I, I mentioned on Twitter, like I, I said, I, well, I'm not gonna be able to, to process this if it ends up being you know a blowout, and that's kind of still how I feel. I mean, there obviously after that game was over, there were plenty of hot takes that were. Uh, thrown out there about Virginia's style of play and whether it's built for, uh, you know, winning uh, tournament games. And I mean, I, I wasn't terribly impressed by any of the writing in that genre because, uh, you know, nobody really explained to me why that style of play is so good uh, in the ACC, you know, regular season and in the ACC tournament uh, the past four years and, you know, not as good in the NCAA tournament. Like I, I get, you know, you play a slow style and it's defensive heavy and, you know, you're going to, run into problems against teams that just make tough shots against you. Like if you can't score and that's partly what happened to Virginia, but um, still it, sh- it shouldn't be this bad. It shouldn't be this, this difficult for them. So I don't think there really is a, a, you know, a great explanation for what happened there. It was just a once in a lifetime game where a 20 point favorite loses by 20. And obviously they, they got challenged, you know, in that first half and they didn't react well in the second half when UNBC made a couple shots and they, they kind of imploded from there. It was a, just a totally bizarre game. You want to hear my theory? Sure, go for it. It's just three-point shooting variance. It was 12. I think they were 12 for 24, and Virginia was like four of 24 or something like that. Um, I think, obviously, that is – I'm oversimplifying it. But sometimes these games come down to three-point shooting in in a very simplistic way where the ball either goes in or or doesn't go in, and and there's, you know, generally like this – crazy amount of uh, of impact or leverage that that shot has whether it goes in or whether it doesn't and so sometimes three-point shooting variance just is so extreme I mean like if you think about those two teams what you would expect you certainly wouldn't expect anything close to that difference and you know that if you go back to probably what their season averages is are and they shoot that Virginia wins that game yeah I mean that you know that was one I guess uh trouble sign for Virginia and like all season long they were their three-point defense was awesome you know it was one of the best in the country and I mean as we know like you know you have some control of that as a team but you don't have a lot of control over it and uh you know ultimately that reverse against UMBC I mean so there's no question like that's an issue and you you know you wouldn't expect Virginia to shoot that poorly or UMBC to shoot that well but even so I mean you know how did UMBC make like you know 55 percent of their two-point shots like that's something that shouldn't be luck. Um, actually just looking it up, they made 58% of their twos. So, uh, you know, that's something that, uh, should not happen to a Virginia defense. Like it can happen if you're playing Duke, like I'll say, okay, yeah, that I can see that happening, but you're playing UMBC, like no offense to UMBC, but they were a 16 seed for a reason. Um, and, uh, to me, that's the, you know, that's the stunning part. I, I get it. Like UMBC got hot from three, but they still, they shouldn't have won the game by 20. You know, I could see a close game in that scenario, but not a 20 point win. Yeah, I mean, I, again, like back to your point, like about Virginia style working in the NCAA tournament. I mean, I think go, I go back to just everything that Billy faced in the Oakland Moneyball days and people saying Moneyball didn't work in the playoffs. It's obviously kind of absurd. I mean, it just it's basically just a notion that sm- in small sample size, anything can happen. And in this case, it, it did happen in Virginia. They, they had a bad game. You know, uh, UMBC made a bunch of shots. Um, I, there's no other way to explain it besides that. I mean, there's no, 
crazy. Maybe they were down because of DeAndre Hunter, all that kind of stuff. Maybe they didn't take UMBC seriously. And when they did, it was, it was too late. You know, they just started making some shots, but it is crazy to think about, you know, them getting out rebounded by, I think what, 10 or 12 and all the assists that UMBC had versus Virginia just was a complete anomaly as a game. Yeah, no question. Yeah, no, I agree. And uh, I mean, you know, the interesting thing that you mentioned there is like not taking UMBC seriously. And, uh, you know, there's obviously a lot of talk during the week about Penn and how strong they were as a 16 seed. And I mean, I half jokingly mentioned on Twitter that, you know, it's not going to happen because everybody's talking about it. And there there is some like truth to that. Like if everybody's telling you like, hey, you're going to get beat by the 16 seed, obviously, you know, you're going to be motivated to beat that team. Like if you were going to overlook them before, you're not going to overlook them at that point. And, uh, and so I think that, that did play a small role here. Like nobody was thinking UMBC would beat Virginia and, uh, and you know, maybe Virginia subconsciously felt that way as well. And so that certainly opened the door for this to happen. Yeah. Okay. So my turn to be a little bit of a tout, uh, holding a 75, one ticket, 71, 75 to one ticket on Michigan to win it all. What as a, NCAA basketball expert consulting me on my portfolio. What would you advise me to do? Yeah. Uh, well, uh, I don't know exactly what your options are, but, um, I like, I like where you're at. I mean, obviously, you know, Michigan's a significant favorite against Loyola. Uh, it's not, you know, not a walkover of course, but, uh, you'd think they would win that game. And, uh, if they do that and they, especially if they get matched up against Kansas in the final, like that's going to be, you know, probably a pick em game. Maybe Kansas will be a, a small favorite. I'm not sure, but it's, it's whatever the spread is, it's going to be very small in one way or the other. Um, so that would be a really nice scenario for you. I mean, I, you probably want to take out a little insurance, I would assume on that, but I mean, yeah, that was a, a great call. I don't know how many, how many futures teams did you pick Jeff? Can you, uh, can you be honest with us? Uh, I took Michigan, and then um, because I'm such a brilliant guy, I decided that I would hedge with a little bit of Gonzaga when that entire left side of the the uh, that that's what's called not really hedging. <laughs> when you actually, I I took some Gonzaga going into the Sweet 16 because I kind of felt like on that left side of the bracket they were the team that I worried about the most. Um, I wasn't really worried about Kentucky. Um, I wasn't really worried about any of the other teams over there. So I took a little Gonzaga, and that's it. Um, that's all I had. I'm in, I'm in a bunch of – I don't know if you've read an article I wrote for ESPN a while back about Calcutta's, um, where you auction off every team. I'm in a few Calcutta's, and we have a bunch of you know the favorite teams there. I, I, I had some Duke in that. Um, but really, in terms of futures, uh, Michigan is actually the only one I have. I don't, I don't bet a ton of futures because your money is tied up for a long time. This one just happened that um, a friend of mine actually texted me like as Michigan um, was winning the Big Ten, um, a lot of the places hadn't adjusted their their lines yet. So things like 75 to 1, uh, 40 to 1 were available on Michigan. So it wasn't – and it, it's not like a it's not like a, a life-changing fortune or anything like that. It's a, it's a pretty small bet, um, but it's it's more fun. So, I mean, from, from my standpoint, I'm probably not going to hedge. Um, do you – would you – if you were even – if you were um, offered right now – Villanova versus the field at even money, would you take it? Oh, I would probably not take it. Uh, yeah, I think their true odds are a little bit less than 50-50. And it certainly seems like there's some 
you know, recency bias going on there. I mean, you look at the other three teams and they all like, obviously Loyola needed a lot of breaks to get to the final four. Michigan needed an incredible um, shot against Houston uh, on their way here. Kansas needed Grayson Allen to miss that, you know, shot off the glass at the end of regulation against uh, in that game against Duke. Um, and Villanova's just been like, you know, a buzzsaw going through the field and people are kind of jumping on that. And, <laughs> You know, I have a feeling uh, the next two games, if they play two games, are not going to be quite so easy. So, I, yeah, I would, I would take the field if, uh, if we had to choose on that one. And then going back to sort of the Kansas-Duke game, that was a game I watched pretty closely. Do you deal much with sort of like – or do you think much about actually like in-game strategy or just the two, way the two teams play against each other? Um, as I was watching that game as someone that really had a vested interest in Duke winning – I don't like Duke, but like we, I had a vested interest in them winning – I kept thinking to myself, this zone, Villanova is going to tear apart this zone. It almost doesn't matter who wins this game because Duke is going to get killed by Villanova. And I felt like there were so many missteps by Duke in that game. Um, To have such a talented team, there were just so many in-game strategy things that didn't make a lot of sense. Um, Never sort of like coming out of that zone. I know that towards the end of the year, they only played zone. But it, it seemed like Kansas, especially in that second half, they were getting the shots that they wanted to get. Yeah, no question. I thought Kansas, you know, their experience really showed there. They obviously, um, you know, had a plan against that zone and uh, and knew what they were doing. And obviously Duke, uh, being as inexperienced as they are, really didn't have a, a counter to uh, to Kansas's approach. So, uh, I mean, personally, I would have loved to have seen, seen Duke and Villanova. I think uh, those were the, the two best teams this season, and it would have been uh, a fantastic uh, um you know, game between one team that is like super experienced and and kind of fundamentally sound and another team that, you know, defensively has issues and obviously had to play that zone all year and is inexperienced. It would have been a really fascinating game, but uh, obviously didn't work out that way because that inexperience and, and the, you know, lack of really being able to play a traditional man defense or even mix things up a little bit. They did mix up their zone somewhat. Like they, you know, their zone wasn't a standard two, three. They could do a few different things in it, but it just didn't seem like uh, they were really able to push the right buttons to, uh, to stop Kansas uh, in that game. What did you think about no timeout, letting Grayson go one-on-one at that time, not getting the ball, not even getting a touch for Bagley um, in that situation? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm okay with the no timeout concept. I think, uh, you know, timeouts, if you have the ball in that situation, timeouts are uh, only going to hurt you as an offense. So, you know, you're just giving the defense a chance to kind of get set and prepare. And uh, unless you, unless things just totally break down, you should avoid calling a timeout in that spot. I mean, as far as like Grayson taking it versus, you know, giving a, a touch to Bagley. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that's a, a fair thing to second guess. I mean, in the end, you know, Grayson's shot wasn't that bad. Like he, it wasn't great. Like it wasn't like it was unchallenged, but you know, he got a, a decent look and it almost went down and um, that, you know, that's, <laughs> that was the, the small difference between a win and a loss in that game. Yeah. I guess I, I know that there's a lot of research that says don't call timeout in that situation, but I guess like if I think a lot of that is, is being able to go before the defense is ready. And if you hold the ball for what, 25 seconds at mid court, just dribbling it and letting the defense set up, I guess I, I would just assume you call a timeout and run something um, anyways there. I, I, I have to imagine it's somewhat of a, a wash in terms of like the defense being able to set up or not being able to set up versus you actually being able to run a play to get the ball to, you know, arguably the, the number one pick coming out of, of um, you know, college. So I guess I'm just a, a bitter fan that looked at that <laughs> game and, and wished that Coach Gay had done something different. Um, 
one other obviously hot take or, or thing that people are talking about is is um, you know Leonard Hamilton not fouling at the end of that Michigan game. I, I earlier talked about my theory on this, but I'm wondering like what you know you probably have a good idea. What do you think the win probability was at that point when you know Duncan Robinson had the ball in the corner and, and they could have either trapped him or tried to foul him um, down by four with roughly what 12 seconds left and, and they didn't do it. Um, would you consider that a, a huge mistake, a, a, a small mistake, or no mistake at all? I mean, I think the main thing was that Leonard Hamilton's postgame interview was a huge mistake. <laughs> so, right. You know, people got the impression that he didn't know what he was doing, and he may not have known what he was doing. But according to the win probability plot on my site, it was uh, about 0.7% at that point. And obviously that assumes you – know, it doesn't account for Duncan Robinson being a 90% free throw shooter or whatever. So – um, it, you know, it's probably less than that. It doesn't account for Florida State not being a good outside shooting team. So that might knock it down a little bit. I mean, obviously, if you don't foul, your win probability is zero. So, of course, like, you know, you should foul. Um, but, uh, I mean, the story of the game was not like that decision. It was everything that led up to that that put them in a position that they were in such a, you know, horrible situation. So, uh, you know, the, the question is like what happened? Like uh, Jeff Haley, who runs the, uh, the Hoop Math site, um, you know, on his Twitter, he kind of said he like broke down the game film and like, you know, it looked like Leonard Hamilton or one of the assistants was maybe kind of signaling to not foul Duncan Robinson for a couple seconds. Then after that to foul. And then by that point, like Duncan Robinson had kind of dribbled away and, you know, there's really nothing that could be done then. So, I mean, who yeah, knows? I mean, they didn't have any timeouts. So they couldn't really, you know, discuss things with their players. And uh, it just ended up being a kind of a, a mess there at the end. But to me, it's like a very very you know just a footnote to kind of the the way the game turned out yeah that was that was roughly my theory that i talked about earlier which was that um you know the player earlier they had fouled duncan robinson really quickly uh in the corner when they they probably didn't need to and i think that they had in their minds not to foul him because pretty much anyone else would have been a good foul and then i did do think they probably did say hey don't foul and you know as as i think leonard hamilton probably just didn't want to Hopefully, I and mean, given the benefit of the doubt, he just didn't want to like you know put it push anyone under the bus and, or anything like that. And at that point, you know, like maybe the don't foul Uncle Robinson got misconstrued into don't foul at all. Um, I'm going to give everyone the benefit of the doubt here and say that that's what happened. Um, but yeah. yeah, I mean, the funny thing is like people have made this whole conspiracy theory out to be like, oh, they did, you know, like <laughs> Leonard Ham- Hamilton knew this point spread and he knew his boosters, boosters had him at four and a half and, and all that kind of stuff <laughs> is such crap, you know, like there's no way that that figured into this at all. No. Uh, yeah, I would agree. I, the only thing I would add is that like, I get like, let's say he didn't want to throw his players under the bus. I can appreciate that. But I do think there was a way to answer that question, like mostly truthfully without throwing your players under the bus. Like you can just say, Hey, you know, I wish we had a time out. We would have called it then. We would discuss the strategy, but we didn't. And so, you know, the kids were confused because we didn't want to foul Duncan Robinson before and they didn't really understand the time situation. And, you know, that's just what happened. But that's not what lost us the game. Like something along those lines, I think, would have worked and sufficed and not made Leonard Hamilton look like a, a buffoon there in those moments after the game. Yeah, it's it's tough, though, at that yeah. last moment. Sure. OK, sure. so I'm going to conclude with a couple quick betting questions. You can take Kansas at plus 400. You can take Loyola Chicago at plus 1100, Michigan at plus 250, or Villanova roughly at even. What do you take? Um, uh, well, I, in the 10 seconds I have to decide here, I will take, uh, I'll take Kansas. Kansas at plus 400, huh? Plus 400, yeah, yeah, I'll take them. 
And then uh, going into this week's games, um, you have, uh, let's see, I think Villanova is a five-point favorite over Kansas, uh, and Michigan is a five-and-a-half-point favorite over Loyal Chicago. Do you see any value in any of those games? Um, I would take uh, I would take Michigan. I would take Michigan in that, in, among those two games. Got it. And then let's say that Michigan and Villanova play. What do you make that line? Oh, it's probably it's probably five, probably the same as, as Kansas. Okay. And then who do you take there? I don't know. I, I mean, I'd probably take the points at that point. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking too. All right. Well, Thanks a lot, Ken. This is obviously uh, always very informative. Um, so it was great to hear your point of view. Uh, and thanks for joining us again. Um, great tournament. Any last words on the tournament? No last words. Just looking forward to, uh, to Saturday. Should be some fun games. Okay. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Jeff. So we wanted to conclude the pod today, obviously opening day just around the corner of baseball. And we haven't talked a lot about baseball. I think uh, Rufus Betts baseball I don't really do very much. Um, I'd like to do more. Obviously, I love baseball. Baseball is sort of my first love, and I love watching baseball, um, but haven't been doing much in the gambling world on it. Uh, but Rufus, wanted to talk a little bit about sort of like, one, how you're prepping for baseball. You mentioned that there's a lot of prep that you're doing right now. What, what does that exactly mean? It, it's honestly, it's, it's very tedious. I'm going through and basically prepping my model just so everything's going to run smoothly for the next season. You know, I'm getting all... Um, getting all the kinks out of the model, you know, updating things. So I have new coefficients for this year. Um, it's honestly just a, a major headache of coding and, you know, seeing that, well, and, and, and seeing, cause every year something, something changes. Like for example, I, I scrape data from weather underground for historical weather. And like, they used to have this option where you could click in and literally the page is like a CSV. So it was super easy to scrape, but now they don't. So now I have to like rewrite this code to be able to account for that. So there's always things like that before a season where, you know, you know some code has changed or some website has changed a little bit. And you have to like, you know, rewrite some stuff. So does you do have to like change the model based on like there was there was been talk about the end of last season the run environment changing a bit because of the fact that like yeah. more home runs were being hit. Is that something that you've seen also? Is that going into your model? Of course it's happened. But what I do rather than comparing um, rather than just like using an absolute number for a player, I look at how a player's done relative to the baseline in that particular time, you know, obviously controlling for park factor and all that stuff. But so I'm, you know, because because there are changes in the game and run environment, you know, and there have been, it's not just last year, you know, the run environment was steadily decreasing um, from you know, the late 2000s all the way until like two years ago um, or right. year and a half ago, whatever it was. And so, yeah, so I'm always, I'm, I'm comparing players to their peers. Um, and so I'm looking at how, and, and not just overall in a given season, it's, it's like relative to like something like a three month sample I'm using, like a moving average and saying, how did this player do relative to, this particular environment where do you think most of like your edge comes from when you are um, betting baseball i know i know you have a simulator and you take into account all these like factors and you know i don't have a simulator oh you haven't built a simulator i don't i I don't i I, back in like 2010 i kind of dabbled in trying to do that but there's a lot of moving parts and i don't know how much you actually gain from that rather than just having your projections for each player um and then 
you know, for each pitcher and for each hitter and all that, and just being like, okay, this is the average, you know, weighted on base average of this li- of the lineup, you know, facing lefties and versus righties and all that stuff, um, and just using run and just using a run estimator from there. And there's a lot of run estimators out there. There's ways to to basically um, to do it pretty neatly. I, I think with simulators, you run into a lot of complications that I don't know make the model. I don't know if they help the model. Like you're having to try to figure out which guy is going to come out of the bullpen, right? Um, when will there be a pin? Will a certain guy pinch hit? When will the manager take out the starter? Right. I mean, you're going to, you have to model a lot of different, like small little things that do have an impact, but, but are just, you know, a nightmare to actually model, I think. So when you model bullpen, do you just do sort of like an overall rating for the, for the team or something? I, I do. And it's, I use a leverage based approach. So basically I'm, um, I'm looking and seeing what pitchers um, are pitching um, in high and low leverage situations. So basically, Fangraphs, for example, does has a leverage index, and so you can say, you know, if, if let's say a guy has an average leverage of like two, that means his average situation has twice is twice as important as an average situation, meaning like and in, in important in terms of its effect on the game's outcome. And so if he faced like you know, so that guy, if he faced, I mean, his innings would be worth twice as much in terms of, um, in terms of how much I'd weight that player. So, um, so for example, like closers are going to have higher leverage, you know, and you might have a guy that, you know, a long reliever might be pitching more innings, but they're going to be low leverage innings. So, and since for at least not for totals, but for, for sides, I care about which team wins. I, I basically multiply expected innings versus expected leverage for each player. And then wait based on that. And then, you know, obviously I have like numbers for lefties and righties. I do think in recent years, integrating pitch FX and the stat cast stuff is, is a new little wrinkle, um, as well as, you know, things like you, you have a lot you can do sort of in baseball, a lot of this, a lot of new stuff in the last few years with like, for example, even catcher framing. Um, and I've, and this isn't really, this is something you could have done for a long time, but I have like base running ratings for every player as well. Which isn't, I mean, they're, you know, it's like not like not including um, basically when the player's batting, if that makes any sense. Like, I'm not looking at how D Gordon is like, right, you know, has had X number of bucks. There's a certain amount of like runs added because they're base running when they're on. I'm I'm looking at how often a guy goes from first to third on a single to right field versus the league average and things like that. And then you have to regress pretty hard to the mean. And by mean, I don't mean like every player is regressed to the same mean. I'm, I'm definitely regressing, d- you know, d- you know, a guy that's like 5'9 and 160 pounds is going to regress to a very different mean than a 6'4", 280-pound guy for base running. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something in general, like using these sort of phenotypical variables that I don't think a lot of people necessarily do. But, you know, a Cesar as tourist or something like that isn't going to be regressing to the same home run rate as a Chris Davis, right? Right. And so the regression the mean, which... I talk a lot about, but, um, which by the way, sorry, I feel like I'm just delving into this stuff, but, um, but regressing to the mean, meaning, um, forecasting future performance, um, using, well, how do I basically extremes in performance are a product of both skill and luck. And then the more extreme, the more luck is generally involved. Um, and so to make an accurate forecast, you need to sort of, you have to, re- you, you need to regress to um, the mean a certain amount. It depends on for something that has more luck inherent in it. Um, you're going to have more regression to the mean, but for something that's 
entirely skill-based, you wouldn't have, need any regression to the mean. Like I, I think, for example, chess is a game where you probably have very little regression to the mean um, if you're forecasting it. I, I don't follow chess closely, but that would be that would be my instinct. But I think in um, you have to figure. You have to, chess? You're not betting a lot. I'm not. I'm not. But but regressing to a proper population mean, I think, is important. Yeah, I mean, basically, what it, you're like, saying, what you're saying, is when there's like when there's less when there's more skill in something, there's less variance. When there's less variance in something, there's less reason to regress to the mean. So the more skill that you think is involved in something, and the less luck, the the more like the lesser reason to believe that something is going to regress to the mean and the more you can believe in the actual performance as a predictor of future performance. Exactly. And, and, and what I'm saying, I think part of my value comes from regressing to a different mean for every player. And that mean is based on the population that player is in. So right. you have a, a guy that that's like their physical attribute. Right. If he's a catcher, like knowing how, many, how often he plays, like if he's a guy that's only getting part-time, um, He's only playing part time. That tells me something. Um, if he was, you know, I mean, do you yeah, use your own projection system, system, or do you borrow people's projection systems? I use my own projection system. So, do you think that's like one of your pieces of secret sauce? For sure, a hundred percent. That's literally my value. I think comes from the projection system, and I, I don't think I don't want to say it's, I don't know if it's better than other ones out there necessarily, but I think it's sufficiently different that I'm that I'm not doing the same thing as other sharps necessarily, and so. Um, so I find, I do find value. Um, I mean, baseball season is a grind though. I know everybody says that I'm trying to, you know, your margins are small, high volume, and it seems like there are so many swings. And personally for me, baseball is the hardest sport emotionally and mentally because it's, it's how I got my start in this. And somehow I just take it really personally if I lose, but the good news is that this is an even numbered year and I always do better on even numbered years. There was a no, like it like 2010, 12, 14, like I did extremely well. And and like basically it's like the even numbered years, I win a lot. The odd numbered years, I basically break even or lose a little bit, it seems like. Um when but you, last year I won. So last year was the first odd numbered year to actually make a significant profit. Do you bet a you know, how how does the season progress for you? I know like last year you stopped at the all-star break. Like, will you have bets on opening day? Um if I if I can get my stuff ready um, in the next like eight hours, then yes. But that's a it's uncertain like whether I'll actually be ready in time. I think right now, honestly, I'm I'm dividing my attention between that and and the greatest sporting event in uh, every year, which is the Masters, of course, which is next right. week. And so that that's a bigger ticket item for me at this point. Um, but I'm by by. The middle of next week, I'll definitely be in the swing of things with baseball, and I'll just be pressing a few buttons or having someone else um, press a few buttons every um, every day to run the code and spit out the numbers. Cool. All right, man. Well, uh, let's. I'll, I'll let you get back to the world of baseball, which I know that you need to get done. Um, and I do. Uh, next, I think we should. Um, we're going to be back on next week talking a little bit about the Masters, which yeah. is very near and dear to my heart. It'll be fun. We'll talk a little masters. Uh, we can talk a little bit about different masters pools setups. So maybe we can help people out to win their pools um, and sure. talk a little bit about futures, etc. cetera. Um, you don't really want to miss this because Rufus is in my mind, the smartest golf sports handicapper there is in the world. So, 
but I don't, I don't have a very big mind and I don't know that many people. So I don't know that many people either. So I think that you're full of shit, but (laughs) all right, man. So enjoy Buenos Aires. I'll talk to you next week. Will do. Thanks for listening guys.